Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, a show where we talk to experts who've taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have sailed around the world to those who've started thriving businesses and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. This is episode 20 with food photographer, traveler, and adventurer, Eric Wolfinger. This episode was brought to you by Toad & Co., Formerly called Horny Toad out of Central California, this great outdoor clothing company makes 90% of their products using eco-friendly materials, whether it's organic, plant-based, or recycled fabrics. They also have a program called Design for Good, which totally kicks ass. They take a portion of every single item they sell and put it towards exposing people with disabilities to life-changing trips in the outdoors. Their mission also aligns perfectly with having a wild idea worth living. They're all about inspiring people to live their fullest lives and they're rabid supporters of following your passions and refusing to settle. They also have a great tagline, which is keep good company. Exactly why I started wild ideas worth living. You can check out all of their amazing products, their mission, and the ambassadors of all abilities they work with at toadandco.com. The New York times called Eric Wolfinger, the Annie Leibovitz of food photography. Eric's a traveler, a surfer, and a cook who found his calling behind the lens. Now a famous food photographer, Eric's published over a dozen award-winning books and done hundreds of photo and film commissions with some of the top chefs around the world. He's always been all about cooking with people, sharing stories, and taking their photos. I love this podcast because Eric is also a very close personal friend from growing up. Smug Mug, the photo company today, released a movie about Eric, and in this podcast, we dive deep, we talk about his wild idea to become a food photographer, some behind the scenes of the movie, and Eric also shares some great stories and nuggets of wisdom, including how to get the perfect food shot for your Instagram feed. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, today we have Eric Wolfinger, one of my favorite actual people in the world, and he's also a food adventurer and a famous now traveling food photographer. Eric, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Hey, Shelby. It's so awesome to have you on. I've been wanting to have you on <laughs> forever, and it's just perfect that someone contacted me because you're in this awesome movie that Smug Mug's putting out today, Wednesday, when this the day this will release. April 19th, this releases this movie about, about your just a glimpse of your life. It is so exciting. So Let's just get started. You had this wild idea to become, to combine your passions, your love of cooking, yeah. food, and photography. Can you just kind of talk about how that wild idea came to be? And just so you know, I, I just read that you have been called by the New York Times the Annie <laughs> Leibovitz of food photography. It's, it's incredible. So you're not just doing it for fun or at an amateur level, but you're now at the top, which is <clears throat> incredible. And that's crazy that they called me that because, you know, you just said that I combined my three passions for food and travel and photography, um, which I did. But, you know, I think the original question was, how do I travel and like have interesting like cooking experiences? I was always into food. How do I do those two things and somehow make a living doing that? And like the most unexpected 
wild sort of answer to that question was do it as a photographer. And that's not something I would have, I would have expected in my wildest dreams. It's so crazy. So we should probably tell people uh, we know each other really well. Um, Eric yeah. and I went to high school together. We were on the surf team together. <laughs> How do we know each other? I, I don't even remember you being a photographer growing up. I no, just remember you. No, I was a surfer. I was a little, I was like the shortest kid in the class and the shortest kid in the lineup, you know, and I think we were about the same height. So that, that <laughs> immediately helped me feel comfortable and confident talking to you. <laughs> you are such a cute it's, kid. You're younger than me. I never talk to younger high school boys, but I always talk to you and we would drive you and Chris Barker to the beach because you guys both lived in Bird Rock and La Jolla and we'd go surfing. And I always yeah. loved surfing with you guys because you made it so fun. Um, yeah. And you were these cool little groms. But how, how did you get into photography? Was there a mentor ever along the lines that was a photographer on surf trips or? Um, yeah. So I remember like going on a lot of surf trips with Marco and with another local surfer, Dave Frapwell. And he, Dave, in my mind, kind of had it made. Like, you know, he, he, he ran a photo developing studio. He took beautiful photos you know, we always came back from surf trips with insane shots of us surfing and, you know, of where we were. And I think, you know, it was it was watching Dave work and create this beautiful art. And like he he gave so much to people by giving them like a great photo of themselves. I, I, th I thought like, wow, I want to be able to I want to be able to do that. Um, and I actually thought the way I was going to do that was through cooking. Like I, my passion has always been for, for food and, and, and for, for sharing food and cooking for people. So after college, I kind of, you know, put the, the expectations of my parents on hold and pursued cooking, like to the nth degree. Cause I thought that's really how I was going to, you know, share what I, what I had to offer. But in the back of my mind, I always remembered Dave's amazing photos and like just, you know, the freedom that a photographer must have being able to throw on a backpack and like go out into the world. And, you know, instead of dealing with like messy pots and pans, you have your camera and you share the share your photos with the world. Mm. It, it was it was sort of this like this seed that 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 Dave planted early in my life that, wow, like being a photographer is the coolest thing. But I, that, that, for some reason that felt so far from the realm of possibility that I didn't even entertain it. So then how did cooking kind of come to, to your mind? I mean, I know your mom and dad are just fabulous cooks, but is that, My mom. it's your mom mostly, not, not yeah. Charlie. Okay. Dad, can, dad can make some mean eggs in the morning. Okay. <laughs> I've had him, he made popcorn when I was there and it was pretty good. And, and popcorn. Yeah. He's since branched out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it wasn't just like popcorn. It was like popcorn caramelized with like spices and I've never well, had that, popcorn like well, that. Well, that's part of a later conversation, which in which, you know, we, we talk about how my dad kind of has come around to my life decisions and, you know, embraces them to the point where he'll start cooking recipes out of some of the cookbooks that I make, including that caramelized popcorn. So let's talk about this. You, your dad is a lawyer, must have wanted you, like all of our parents in La Jolla wanted us to be like lawyers or professionals. Of course. Of course. And you, um, your mom did something else. Can you tell me what, what your... Yeah, she was a professor at, at UCSD. That's right. Uh, okay. And, you know, 
somehow managed to put an amazing meal on the table most nights of my childhood. Um, and so I think that's like the, the passion for food and for, and for cooking comes, comes from her, Mm. especially. So then how did you pursue cooking like right after school against the probably (laughs) against probably your father's wishes? You know, how, how did this come to be and what did you start doing immediately after college? Well, you know, so my friend, when we were graduating, posed the question to me. So what are you going to do with your life, dude? And I really, I, I had no answer. I just said, you know, if I could somehow cook, travel, and make a living doing that, that would be awesome. And I think, I think in the back of my mind, the way to do it was to be a food writer. I mean, I, I went to college and spent four years BSing my way through essays. I, I figured I could I, I could tell a pretty good story. I could I could string a sentence together or two, and that if I was going to make a living traveling and cooking, it would be through writing. And so I went to I moved to San Francisco to kind of go back to the basics in a way and and really learn how to cook well. I wanted to if I was going to write about food, I wanted to write about it from a perspective that I would respect. And I figured I needed to become a more proficient, competent professional in the kitchen first. So I, through another one of our high school friends, Shelby, scored an apprenticeship at a, at a restaurant in Berkeley, kind of loosely connected with Chez Panisse, and had an amazing sort of culinary and life education in like in three months. You know, I went from, I went from a, a place where college, where adults, you know, really think that you have something valuable to contribute to a conversation and and then they treat you like you're important to a kitchen where I was basically the village idiot. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't work fast enough. I didn't work clean enough. You know, I asked too many questions, you know, I was a pain in their ass. Um, and that was a humbling experience. What else can I say? You know, <laughs> when did you go to Peru? So I remember there was this one time you were home from college or maybe it was after college and you're like, yeah, I, I went to Peru. I stole a map of the Inca trail. This was like way uh, before we had cell phones. Yeah. And you cooked pancake with some people <laughs> that helped you figure out where the Inca with local Peruvians and figured out where the Inca trail yeah. was. When was this? Well, and you can okay. tell the story real quick. Yeah, of course, of course. But I think, I think just that story is part of, Initially, after graduating from college, I wanted to take off on a road trip and travel through Mexico and South America. But I got sidetracked by this cooking idea. So that's where I went to San Francisco to, to cook. Mm. And it, after about a year and a half working in, in kitchens, I kind of realized, you know what? This is probably not the life for me. I'm actually, I'm not a chef. I'm, I'm a traveler. So I took off for a year in South America and, you know, had no plan, but eventually sort of found my way to Cusco, Peru, you know, and everybody's going to the Inca, to the, on the Inca trail to, to go to Machu Picchu. And I think I was a little frustrated with, um, sort of what I felt was like the tourist train. Mm. And I remember watching an episode, uh, of Anthony Bourdain and seeing him take the train to Machu Picchu. And I was like, oh no, I'm going to be way more hardcore than that. And I'm going to walk from my hostel to Machu Picchu. 
and I, I found this like little sort of illustrated map of the, um, of the sacred Valley and, you know, no Inca trail, no train. I literally stepped out of my, out of the door of the hotel and sort of meandered through the sacred Valley for seven days to get to Machu Picchu. I mean, and, and I think, I think the, like the, the amazing thing about that journey was, you know, of course, Machu Picchu was the, was the destination. And I actually, you know, I was in South America looking for food stories, but on, but on that sort of hike, that was just kind of like a wild idea that I had that I wanted to, to pursue. And, you know, every single day, you know, I, something about the trip would make me vulnerable. I was hungry and I ran out of food or I had blisters and I didn't want to walk anymore. And I would always connect with like the local people or I was lost and inevitably we would, you know, share food, whether it was potatoes being cooked in the dirt, in the same dirt that they were grown in or making, as you mentioned, like pancakes with these kids who, you know, helped me sort of find my way out of this like smaller valley. The, the, the whole, the whole the whole walk was sort of peppered with these interesting, wonderful sort of human connections. And it was always connecting around food. And these are local uh, people who often spoke no English, correct? Of course. Yes. No, no English. No English. Yes. And no. your Spanish is good or at this point, not good? Está bien. Good enough. Está muy bien, yeah. Um, so that's amazing. So I remember, yeah. and, and you had some photos from this trip. And then how did this connect to Tartine? So when I left for South America, I had this idea that I was going to give myself my dream job, right? Um, I figured at this point, nobody was going to just tell me, here, go on an adventure and write about it and take pictures and we're going to pay you. So I, I started a blog. And while I was traveling through South America, I was, you know, not updating the blog on a daily basis, but I was updating it when I felt like I had a really good story to tell. And my intention for the blog was to really showcase like, you know, my, you know, my adventurous spirit and my writing. And I kind of brought along a camera just to sort of supplement the stories. When I came back to California, you know, I, I reached out to, uh, Chad, my, the, Baker at Tartine, whom I had been working for for about a year leading up to my journey to South America, just to say what's up. And he invited me back to San Francisco to get back to work baking bread and also to help him with his cookbook idea. So Tartine is a famous bakery in San Francisco for people who don't know. Yes. And, and that's a little, you know, we, we sort of we went from me cooking in an Italian restaurant to South America, and we sort of skipped the part where after cooking in that Italian restaurant, I wound up at, at Tartine Got it. Um, as a baker. So, you know, like I, I, I took some, I, I left Tartine, I went to South America. When I came back, you know, Chad, Chad said, you know, I've been following your blog, and it's like really good, dude. Do you want to help me bring this bread book to life that I have in my head. And in my mind, that was, that was the opportunity that I had 
like been waiting for. But the opportunity that I would have never dreamed of was him asking me to also photograph the book. Wow. And that was that was a crazy idea and a wonderful opportunity because I never saw myself as a photographer. I always took pictures to supplement the storytelling. But this was this was Chad saying, you know this bread better than anybody else in the world, any other photographer rather. Like you're the guy who should take the photos for this book. And and that was that 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 invitation to collaborate on the uh, on the photography sort of set me on the course I'm on today, I would say. I think that's so interesting. And I think one of the things that is sort of left out in this story is it was also the ultimate trade. So you're not only this line cook, but or not, you're a bake baking. Well, how do you, what is it called in in the bread business? You're a baking I, I was a baker. I, you're I a, was baker. a baker's okay. apprentice. Sorry. I was a baker's apprentice. A let's baker's it, let's, apprentice. Let's call us that. But yeah. you also traded surf lessons, which Correct. I've done. I'm a big fan of trading surf lessons for opportunity. <laughs> it's opened a lot of doors taking people well surfing. Well put. Well put. So, so you took Chad surfing. Is that is this correct? Am I telling this? Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're telling the story right. I think you should tell it. You t- so okay. how does surfing and cooking and photography all go together? Well, I remember. I remember when I was just starting out. Uh, baking at Tartine, that there was a guy, you know, who would saunter in at 11 a.m., sometimes noon, kind of like he owned the place and would, you know, sort of get to work. And four hours later, this amazing bread would come out of the oven. And I asked like one of the the coworkers, who's that? And she's like, oh, that's Chad. He owns the place. <laughs> he does own the place. And I was like, man, that guy, like, not only does he, you know, have it made with this wonderful bakery, but he's got it made with his schedule. You know, he has all morning to serve. And he didn't surf. He he was he was doing something else with his mornings, you know. So over the course of time we developed a rapport and I told him, Man, you need to try surfing. You have you you've got the schedule for it. And I finally convinced him to come out with me one day and I think he expected it to be a lot easier than it was. And the difficult, I think it was the sheer difficulty of surfing that attracted him to it in the first place. And I think honestly, the sheer, the surprising difficulty of bread is what attracted me to bread in the first place. Um, there are so many kind of like high level similarities between surfing and bread making that they really, you know, Chad and I would drive to the beach, you know, sometimes an hour and a half north of Point Reyes, and we'd be kind of like trading questions, me asking him about about bread and him asking me about surfing. And, you know, just like in surfing, in bread, you have days where the bread comes out insane and you, and you have no, con- you, you feel like you have no control over that or you're like you're surfing really you know those days Shelby when you're like when you're like man I rip and then the next day like you paddle out in somewhat similar conditions and you're totally flailing like bread is the same way some days you get these epic loaves that just explode open in the uh in the in the oven in the ovens with the oven spring 
And then two days later, your bread kind of comes out sort of dinky and flat. And you're like, I thought I, I thought I was great at this. So it, like, there's this kind of constant pursuit of, um, I don't want to call it perfection, but of, of, of greatness that, that, that is occasionally attainable in both surfing and bread. And I think that's like the, that's the connection that I've always teased out between surfing and bread. And of course, Chad and I had that amazing trade with each other um, that lasted for nearly five years as we were creating this bread book. So how, I have so many questions I have for you right now. <laughs> I want to know what makes a great piece of bread, but I also want to know, you know, this book that you did for Tartine went on to win huge awards, like James Beard Awards, right? Am I saying that correctly? Nom nominated, 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 nominated. Nominated James Beard Awards. Okay. Yeah. I'm giving you a Pulitzer Prize winner in my head. Um, <laughs> Pulitzer <laughs> Prizes. Um, you know, but but really, what 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 about those photos are so different? I guess then it made it so popular and how and your approach to taking photos of bread. You know, Chad had done a cookbook with his wife um, before the bread book, and they hired an insanely talented food photographer, Franz Rufenach. To me, the first tart the first tartine book is a benchmark of photography. It is it is beautiful. And, you know, if I think about, you know, my process versus hers, you know, I was a complete amateur. You know, I, I knew nothing about being a professional food photographer whatsoever. And so whereas it took France two weeks to shoot the first Tartine book, um, it took me two years to shoot the Tartine bread book. And I think, you know, if I could, if I could boil down, like, Besides the difference in approach and the difference of, of professionalism of the two photographers in those two books, I think, you know, the, you know, the, the difference that you get in the, the, in the bread book is that it's sort of this, it's a raw expression of my passion for bread. I mean, I, I, I like lived and breathed bread for almost five years. Like, you know, flour... Bread is made of three things, flour, water, and salt. We don't, even, we don't use yeast. We use a, a mother starter, which is made with flour and water as well. So there's three ingredients in bread. And like these three ingredients just sort of captivated every bit of my creativity and my, and my, and my attention. And so the bread book, the photos at least, are, are kind of like that that passion and that attention sort of in photos. I think one of the things you do is you capture the essence of what it's like to experience eating and cooking <laughs> it. There's a picture of the focaccia bread and there's like hands reaching for the focaccia bread. In the middle, mm. it's like crystal clear. You can see like all the textures of this beautiful piece of focaccia bread. And then these hands are kind of like blurred out, all rushing to grab for this piece exactly. of bread. And it's so beautiful because that's the experience of the dinner table. Like when a great piece yes. comes, I love that. So what is your approach to photography? It, it seems like you yeah. don't just go take photos. You, you know, you always used to tell me like, I, I meet people, I cook with them and I take their photos. But 
Yeah. You do more. Talk right. to me about that. Yeah, I I want to understand well, I think with the bread book I spent 5 years getting to know Chad, getting to know the bread and then, you know, figuring out how to express his devotion to his craft, his love of craft and, you know, my love of the craft too and my love of the bread. And I think you know, with every project I've taken on since, there's this process of getting to know, you know, the subject of, of my photography, which is not food, it's a person generally, you know, it's, there's somebody behind the food who's making this food and they're making it for a reason, or they're, they're, they're doing things in a certain way for a reason. And I, so I'm, I'm, I'm as interested in the why as I am the how and the what, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes so, sense. So, so yeah, like I, I want to get to know, you know, the person behind the food, because if I know, if if I get, if I can kind of like latch into their, into their passion, like ninety nine times out of a hundred, I'm going to start feeling that same excitement about whatever they're doing as well. So I kind of like, there's a sort of this process of where I begin to fall in love with like the subject matter and the food. And then I, you know, there are times where before I even shoot a single photo, like I will, I will follow a recipe. I'll follow their, their recipe just to understand like, you know, the process and, and kind of the, the, the textures and the aromas that that I want to capture. I mean, I, I can't capture an aroma in a photograph, but I can try, you so, know? So you did this in the movie, in the Smug Mug movie, it shows you capturing yeah. chocolate and you're like, yeah. So you, you, can you tell us about that process where you make chocolate and then. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the realization of all of my dreams. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm sure I'm sure when I watched Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, I dreamed of being able to dip my hand into a, a drum of like melted chocolate. Um, so yes, this 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 the, the the dandelion book is the culmination of all of my childhood dreams. Well, dandelion, for those who don't know, is a uh, small batch chocolate maker in San Francisco whose mission um, is first to source the best chocolate that they can find any everywhere anywhere in the world and they have one of their co-founders spends over half the year on the road meeting with cacao farmers meeting with producers all over the world Tanzania Papua New Guinea Belize you name it he's there and then they bring this cacao back and for each bean they make a single origin bar. They don't. They don't blend beans. They don't. They don't. They don't combine. They don't add any other inclusions like nuts or milk or anything like that. All their entire lineup of chocolate is maybe ten bars, and each one is made from cacao from a particular origin. And what you get when you taste through their chocolate is you is you start to like taste the nuances of of difference between 
cacao grown in Tanzania, let's say, and cacao from the Dominican Republic. And so with their book, they want to teach people literally how to make a bar of chocolate from origin to the chocolate bar that you're eating. Mm. And I mean, of course, in order to tell that story, we have to go to origin. And that's a huge travel component. But then we also have to visually explain to people how to make this bar of chocolate. And for me, you know, they asked me, oh, well, what, what, should our, what should the shot list be? Can you, can, you, can you like tell us, you know, what shots you think we'll need? And I realized that I, I couldn't until I actually made a bar of chocolate by my, with their recipe. And it was actually making the chocolate from their recipe that I realized, wow, you know, you know the, uh, the other title for this book is going to be Fifty Shades of Brown because there's no, there's like very subtle, if any, color variation in, in, in chocolate making. So I realized, okay, this is kind of a texture story more than it is a color story. I'm really into color, of course, but for this book, it's all about texture going from a a cacao bean which is about the size of your of your pinky to a chocolate bar in which you've ground the cacao to below 20 microns because only below 20 microns does your tongue not sense any bit of grit or texture and so the book explains how to do that and what's amazing about 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 that whole process and I tested this as part of sort of my due diligence get to know you is you can get every bit of equipment that you need on Amazon. And it, it's like a couple hundred bucks at most. Wow. That's so, amazing. You know, I, I met the dandelion guys. I, I, I really fell in love with their vision. And then when I realized that, wow, they, they truly genuinely want to teach people their process. They want to blow open the doors to all of the things they've learned, which is what we did with tartine bread. We blew open the doors to, to Chad's method. I said, wow, like this is something I want to be a part of and something that, you know, I, I can personally invest myself in and believe in. It's so interesting. My neighbor, I'm literally like looking at across the street, she bakes sourdough bread. And I went over to her mm -hmm. house while she was baking sourdough bread. And guess whose book was on her table? <laughs> it was awesome. She's like, oh yeah, I've lived in Berkeley and there was this restaurant, Tartine. It's so funny. Yeah. So that's well, amazing. That, that, that book has traveled the world. You know, that book, that book introduced a few like subtle but very important techniques to the baking world. And it has changed... I mean, at least from what I can tell on, on my Instagram feed, it has changed sort of the, the, the baking landscape in the States and, and, and elsewhere. I mean, some of the methods that, that Chad discovered and that he generously shared through that book have had a huge impact on, on baking globally. It's amazing. How yeah. You, how, it's awesome. <laughs> how do you get it? Is. You know, chefs... I don't know that world very well, but from what I've seen on TV, they don't seem like they would be the easiest to get to open up. How do you get sort of these, these people that are really attached to their craft 
to open up about it? I think they just, they can all sense that I, it's not that I respect what they do. It's that I, I, I can appreciate what they do like from like from their position, you know, I, like I think I think they sense that I care about their food as much as they do. Mm. I care about them. I, yeah, I care about what they're doing as much as they do. And I think they sense that with me that they have a true, you know, co- collaborator is, is is one word, but I'm looking for another word, you know, where. You're where, sort of their champion and their promoter, too, at the same time. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But, but it's, it's almost like it goes deeper than that even too. Like I, I, like I, I really, I'm, I'm as invested as they are Hmm. in, 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 in their, in the way their food is presented. And I don't, I don't, I don't have like, you know, a kind of Eric Wolfinger look, you know, I think a lot of photographers find a look that works for them and, they hammer that look and they and they do well with that and i really try to let the let the let the project and the chef kind of help guide the look cuz if you look at tartine bread and then you open for example benu which is benu is a three michelin star restaurant here in san francisco um the chef formerly from the french laundry kind of cooks this American, Chinese, Korean fusion food at like the highest level. You know, every dish is presented to you almost as if it were a jewel box. And so, you know, that is a far cry from this really like rustic, masculine look of tartine, right? And that look wouldn't wouldn't work with with Bennu, but you know, I really got to know Corey Lee, the chef, um, and I think we were able to develop a language and a look where he felt honestly represented. Does that make sense? Like, I don't impose my my look or myself on other on, on a chef. I'm like, I have a lot of experience, you know, making food look good, and 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 and, and there's all these sort of like you know, experiences and techniques that I bring to bear, but really like the, the, the look of the photos is based on this sort of conversation and collaboration dance that I have with, with my chef clients. I totally get that. It's, you bring what they have to life for each client and everyone's different. I mean, with my writing, people are like, what's your voice? And I'm like, you know, it depends on the client. I write completely different for vans than I would for a luxury company. Different voice. Totally. Different Um, voice. But, you know, so many people now take photos of their food, Eric. So I have to ask you (laughs) because people will want to know, are there any tips, tricks to taking a great food photo that you can share? Just that anybody can do right now with even their iPhone. Yes. Yes. Um, I have a bunch of – this whole conversation has been all of my – you could boil this whole conversation down into Eric's – esoteric tips and tricks, you know, about getting into the mind of a chef and blah, blah, blah. But I think what you're asking me for is, um, like concrete, how do I take a better iPhone photo of my lunch? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, well, 
there's an exercise that you can do sort of with any camera that will kind of give you like a basic lesson in food photography. Find a window, like in your bedroom, let's say. Find a window, a room that only has one window. Turn off all of the overhead lights and put a little table about three feet from that window. Put a plate with a couple of oranges on it and cut one of the oranges in half and put the cut side up. We're getting both form and we're also getting moisture in this shot, right? This is an exercise, and I think this 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 exercise sort of encapsulates a lot and can be used in any application. And now, take your camera and just circle around that table and take a photo. Kind of, you know, take twelve photos. One like imagine like your circle is a is a clock, right? And at one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, etc., take a photo. You will have taken. You will have lit your food almost every way that food can be lit from the side from the you can do back you'll do backlighting that way when you're shooting directly into the light over the food and front and and front lighting the food like from with the with the window at your back and find find the look that you like the best and then let and let that sort of define help help you define how to take pictures of your food. Does that make sense? I love that. I'm completely going to we have a we have a perfect table right by the window. We always take pictures of Johnny's vegan raw creations. Yep. But sometimes they just turn out crappy because we have these overhead lights on or it's nighttime and it's dinner and we just want to eat the food. Right. But well, this is a great exercise. Taking taking photos of at night of food with your iPhone is something that I struggle with. And I mean, if you look at my Instagram feed, it's my iPhone. I don't really take my Instagram feed too seriously. It's a little more lighthearted. But you know, if you have good daylight and you have a and you have nice window light and no overhead lights, you know, chances are you get a pretty nice photo. Oh, and the last thing is you should pay attention to the surface that you're taking a picture on. You know, the surface that the food is resting on oftentimes is the only sort of context that you're giving the viewer of where the of where your food is. And that can play a huge part in your storytelling. Hmm. What about tricks, tips for like things you take in your travels, things you take on your travels to just help make your travels easier because you travel all around the world all the time. And and I always pack for my travels an hour before I'm supposed to be at the airport. <laughs> oh, your poor girlfriend. I know. <laughs> uh, I, I don't bring a lot of clothes, but I bring a lot of underwear and socks. Okay. That's my first tip. It's a good tip. Second tip is... Go as light as you possibly can. I'm always, you know, I, 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 have a, I have a big photography kit, you know, that I lug around, you know, for studio shoots and, and kind of local shoots. But when you're on the road, the last thing you want is like that huge lens, that huge 85 millimeter 1.2 lens, which takes beautiful photos, but you're never going to want to lug it around. So I really try to pair my... Travel is all about 
getting out into the world and like stripping away as 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 much of the kind of extra crap that we normally have to carry around in our in our usual life and be free to like you know connect and experience things and the best way to do that is to travel light so you know when i'm on the road i'll bring a camera and at most i'll have two lenses hmm. you realize how little you need to do beautiful things i love that what have you learned what do you learn about people when you cook for them and with them mm. i think i think it's just, it all comes back to empathy you, you when you connect over a meal when you connect and you cook with somebody you can empathize with them easier better and i think i think for any like real human connection what you need what you need is empathy um and i think that's like what it all comes down to you know is is how you know, how can i how do i understand this person a little bit better how like like what are we connecting like how can we connect right um and even if you don't speak the same language you can connect over food and the enjoyment of that food and it's nourishing yes it tastes good yes but really it's just about you know acknowledging and feeling the other person's humanity mm. right so i have a question when you have a dinner party do you have yeah. food prepared ahead of time or do you kind of <laughs> wait and cook with people when they cuz cuz i always struggle with that i'm like should i have you know some of my friends have kids and they're busy now and i feel like the meal should pretty much be like in the oven and when they get here it's like coming out but it also feels right. really forced when it's when that happens. Yeah. Well, I usually don't have my shit together <laughs> when guests come over, so I automatically put people to work. So, I mean, a lot of my friends have a joke. Oh, Eric's inviting us over for dinner at 7. We're going to eat at 9. But, you know, as long as you have a couple of bottles of wine open, you can make it really fun for everybody. Um, and you also have to relinquish a certain degree of control over, over whatever recipe you're cooking. But I think people really, like, even people who don't think they're good cooks, you can empower them, you know, w with, with something simple and praise them. And, you know, all of a sudden this person who like, you know, would, you know, would never throw a dinner party is kind of considering, you know, when they're going to invite you over for, over for dinner. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite thing to cook right now? Oh man. Um, if you were to have a dinner party tonight, tonight, what are you cooking? Who's coming over, Shelby? I'm coming over. You have some dietary. Okay, we're not vegan. You. Take, take, <laughs> don't take that into consideration. I'm Surfer Shelby, you know from forever. Okay, okay. And Alma's okay. gonna be there. Your girlfriend's gonna be there. Maybe, maybe so, Johnny's coming. Okay, okay, okay. I've got an amazing recipe for us. It, it's from a book that I recently did with a culinary legend who traveled all over Morocco and southwestern France kind of in search of like real deal recipes cooks and interesting stories and this is an adaptation of a recipe that she got from a chef who is now very famous but 
she can lay claim to discovering him, quote unquote, for uh, an American audience in the 80s. And it's Michel Bras' oven-steamed salmon. Now, salmon, as you know, like when it's cooked perfectly, is delicious. But oftentimes, like if it's undercooked, it's not that great. If it's overcooked, it's not that great. This oven-steamed salmon, you put it a thick hunk of salmon in in the oven at 200 degrees, and put a baking sheet filled with boiling water on the rack beneath it. And you close the oven, and 20 minutes later, you have perfectly cooked salmon. Wow. Now, now my, my little like twist on that is I'm going to thinly slice some oranges, limes, whatever citrus I have on hand, and put that on top of the salmon, and make a little slurry of brown sugar and a little fish sauce, and put that over the citrus. And I'm going to put that salmon back in the in the oven and crank the broiler. And so that like that sugar caramelizes with the citrus. You get a little bit of umami funk from that fish sauce. You take that out of the oven, chop up some cilantro and some, you know, serrano chilies, sprinkle that over the top. And like that is a one pan dinner that anybody can like. That sounds awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> That's what I would cook for you. Tonight. I'm excited for you to come back to San Diego on your next trip and cook that for me. Yeah. Or I'll come up to San Francisco. I'm due for a visit. You are. So I have a question. This show is really about following your wild ideas and, and yeah. making a living around them. How does, you know, do you have any advice to give to people about how they can make a living around their passion? <sighs> First, take your passion seriously, right? Like, I don't think I ever expected to be a photographer, per se, but I, 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 I knew there was some way that I could, I, I felt it. I knew there was some way that I could cook and travel and make a living doing that. And, you know, there were a lot of detours along the way, but I don't think I ever lost sight of like my sort of root passion for food and for travel. And sometimes it's hard in the moment to know how, you know, all of your experiences are going to add up to like a career. Um, but if you're taking your passion seriously and you are, you know, pursuing it honestly and you're pursuing it you know, with hard work, to be frank, and you're being a good person along the way, opportunities will arise. And I think, you know, it's up to you to see those opportunities and to grab them. And I think the last thing I would say, the, the, the advice that I, that I give everybody who asks me a similar question is find a mentor. Find somebody who maybe isn't doing exactly the thing that you want to be doing, but is doing something that you really admire and try to work for them. Offer your, offer your, offer your talents, you know, for free if you have to. That's what I did at Tartine for quite some time. Just, you know, make yourself available and like be helpful to this person whom you admire and, you know, your work, your work will be reciprocated, and the lessons that you learn um, and the opportunities that you probably 
get from that will be greater than you could possibly imagine, I think. Mm. But but find that mentor. Find find that person who who you feel, you know, is doing something great and try to find a way to help them. And they will inevitably help you in your path. That's really good advice. Can you do this when you're older, not just young? Oh my god. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, you know, I apart from I'm constantly sort of apprenticing myself to people still. I'm still learning. There, 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 there's other things that I want to be doing that I want to try. And, you know, I, I plan to apprentice myself to others well forever, I think. It's such a great way to go about learning something. The apprenticeship. Yeah. So much yeah. better than in a school or a classroom or from a book. Yeah, be and, and and I think apprenticeship also means like you got to be useful to 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 the person you're apprenticing with. I get a lot of emails of people saying, "Oh, like I could learn so much from you." But never once do they mention like what they bring to the table. And even if you think you have not you you bring nothing to the table, you do. Maybe you make a killer cup of coffee. Maybe you know how to sweep really well. That's good advice. This is great advice. You know, how do you, how did you get right now? I know you're, you're okay with not knowing what's next. You know, you don't probably know what your next book is today. I relish that. I I, I relish not knowing. I think that that's what makes things vibrant. That's what makes life vibrant and exciting. How did you get to that point where you're okay with that though? Is it having a certain amount of money in the bank or a certain amount of books you've written? Is it having traveled to so many countries? Is it you know, I think it's part of my nature. I, I honestly, I think it's part of my nature. I think, I think, you know, when I watched a lot of friends applying for grad school, medical school, you know, they, they were signing up for, for a, a path that was very clearly, clearly written. And I think, I think just in something, something in my nature knew that that wasn't a good fit for me. So I think, I think, you know, everybody has their own answer for that for that question of when you're comfortable not knowing what's around the corner. And I think, you know, some degree of I, I mean, a degree of financial stability is, of course, a prerequisite for that. But um, that is also in my nature as well to not want to know what's coming down the road. Since you live your life so spontaneously, do you have any routines or habits that you kind of stick to daily? I love getting up 40 minutes earlier than Alma and going downstairs and making like the most perfect cup of coffee I possibly can, whether that's pour over or a cappuccino or something like that. Like I... That's my that's my one routine is I'll I'll geek out on coffee for probably a half an hour every morning. That's a great routine. <laughs> Are there any books that you recommend or gift or love or have been gifted that you just you recommend to others? Oh man. Um <sighs> Is this where I admit that I haven't I haven't <laughs> Taking the time to sit down and properly read a book in a really long time. It's okay. 
No, that's, I mean, I, you've been writing books. I love books. I love, I believe in books and yet you've, you've caught me. I, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. How about, how about this? We ask, we ask all of our guests the same question. You know, if you could go back in time and tell your 15 year old self one piece of advice, is there anything you would tell him? Stay calm and follow your gut. That's good advice. If you could fly an eco-friendly plane around the world and it could write, you know, some crazy message to the world, is, is there kind of a mantra or message that you'd love to just have the world know? Gosh, wouldn't it? I mean, isn't almost, almost a variation of that? Like, hey, stay calm and share a meal with your neighbor. <laughs> I love that. Share a meal with your neighbor. If we did that, there would be some some world peace. Um, yeah. Eric, where can people find out more about you? I, I want to talk about this movie. We're going to put a link to the Smug Mug movie. Can you just really quickly tell us how that came about? Uh, the film? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, as a photographer, you know, I'm always, well, as a professional photographer, I'm always trying to find a way to you know, put my work out there on the web mostly and in books, of course, but on the web, uh, you know, for people to see it like as nice as possible. And, you know, there are a lot of web services that I've, I've, you know, tried out and smug mug by far, you know, I don't know what it is in their algorithms, but you know, photos, my photos do not look better anywhere else on the web than they do on SmugMug. So my website is on SmugMug and, you know, they sort of, you know, unbeknownst to me as part of like their, their like company vision, they make films about photographers they admire and they approached me to do a film about me. And, um, at first I was a little, uh, I was a little hesitant you know, because I was like, I, I'm behind the camera. I'm not in front of it. And, um, you know, I saw the production quality of the films that they had made in the past. And I, I, I was like, oh, my God, these guys are spending like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars making these beautiful films. And I come to find out that it's one dude who makes these films. Wow. One guy. One like there's a credit sequence with one name. He does he does the shooting the drone shots, he does the editing, the color, the sound, the script, everything. Um, and I was so impressed with the production quality uh, and my conversation with the director, filmmaker Anton, that I sort of just opened the doors to him. Um, and you know, there's a perfect example of somebody whom I've apprenticed myself to in a in in a small way. Like he he has been. Work, our, working with him has been so inspiring to me that, you know, I do like video advertisements and I, you know, I direct them and I've got a, a set with like, you know, 10 people, you know, all contributing to this thing. But watching this one guy work and kind of almost work the way I work as a photographer intimately um, with, you know, a lot of attention to his subject matter kind of gave me like the the confidence to go out and try to make a couple of well, try my hand at like f- 
filmmaking Anton style, like wow. one guy and Alma, <laughs> of course. Um, we do a lot of work together. And so, you know, Alma and I, well, I, I'm getting off topic, but I, but I, I should say that like working with him inspired me to like pursue my own um, documentary side projects. So is that something we have to look forward to? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What are these going to be on? I've got, I'm working on one film about Mezcal in Mexico. That's right. I uh, remember that. You guys went down there. Yeah. We're going back again in June. Um, and I'm doing another, another film in collaboration with a Japanese chef in Tokyo about dashi. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Eric, where can people find you? Like social media? We're going to link to uh, the Smug Mug film. Yes, link to the Smug Mug film. My website is probably the best way to, uh, to like sort of see what I do and, and reach out. Um, you know, you can contact me through my website. And of course, I'm on Instagram. Um, Are you on Twitter? Nope. I think someone made an account for me on Twitter, but I've never used it. <laughs> I have to be on it. I don't really use it either, but um, we'll, we'll put some quotes from you on Twitter from this okay, episode. Cool. Eric, thank cool. you so much for coming on Wild Ideas Worth Living and sharing your stories. This was awesome. Oh, Shelby, thank you for, thank you for asking me questions in a way that allowed me to tell this story in a way I've never told it before. Well, you're so welcome. I can't wait to see you. And for the audience, I hope you enjoyed this show. Thanks so much for listening to this show. And thanks again to Eric, to Smug Mug, and to Toad & Co. for sponsoring this show. If you enjoyed this show and you want more on Eric Wolfinger, you can go to ericwolfinger.com. You can also go to the website, wildideasworthliving.com. Click on our episode. And when you hit play, a show notes page will open up with links on where to find that Smug Mug video, as well as links on where to buy Eric's books, including that one with Tartine. Thank you again for listening. If you like this show, please tell a friend. You can also sign up for the newsletter at wildideasworthliving.com to be notified of new episodes and new adventures every week. And wherever you are in the world, please remember the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. We'll see you next week. We have lots of great guests coming up. Mm -hmm.